For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. Did you listen to last week's show, the first of Series 9? It was with Parley for the Ocean's founder, Cyril Gutsch. I love it. Got some cracking interviews for you this series. I feel like it's, um, yeah, I can't wait to share these conversations with you. I should tell you what some of them are. Why not? I'll give you the heads up. So coming up, I've got an amazing chat with Michaela Stark, body positive corset designer. She's amazing. But she's just announced, did you see it? She just announced an activation with Victoria's Secret. She says she's here to dismantle the whole old idea of a VS angel. (laughs) So good. What else? Textile Waste in Uganda. We've got a show on that. We've got one on Lagos Fashion Week. We've got some great interviews that I recorded in Fiji. An important episode around the COP28 in Dubai with a climate activist from Vanuatu. Oh, I've got this gorgeous interview I've been saving up with the Irish fashion designer, Richard Malone. It's so beautiful. He, he's really a lovely talker. And, oh yeah, I got a few conversations with fashademics, <laughs> one of my favourite professions, if you can call it that. I got the legendary Karen Franklin, who's been on my wish list for ages to interview. I've got British Bangladeshi designer and St. Martin's educator, Rahimur Rahman. Very important conversation there about how we can make sure there are less barriers to entry to get into the arts. And Karishma Singh Kelsey is coming up and she, big news, is presenting one of our new online courses. Hers is about co-creating with artisans. So good. What are you excited about from that lineup? Tell me on socials. Actually, talking of excitement, it is two weeks to go until my new book comes out in Australia. Where next? Fashioning the Future, published by Thames and Hudson. It comes out in the UK in February, so you've got to wait a bit longer if you're in Europe. But I've got some big things planned, including a bunch of tour dates. <laughs> Not like a rock star. What will that be? Talks and lovely activations. So check the show notes for links for all of that and to pre-order the book. And also do keep an eye on my Instagram for news. I'm at Mrs. Press. Talking of Instagram, my guest this week is a very, very big Instagram deal. This week's topic is about the power of influence. And I'm talking to the charming and surprisingly down to earth rising Hollywood star, Taylor Zakar Perez. You might know Taylor from his rom-com roles. I just watched him in Red, White and Royal Blue based on the cult book of the same name. Although, we do not talk about that here at all, because no one is promoting their movies, either past or present right now. And that's due to the actor and writer's strike, yeah? Which, uh, I think it's in its ninth week right now. If you haven't been following this, here's the background. For the first time since 1960, two of the entertainment industry's biggest unions, the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, combined they've got like I don't know, 175,000 members or something, they're all striking at the same time, effectively halting scripted film and TV production. Now, it's about pay, of course. You always think like Hollywood people are really loaded, but it's only the big stars that get the heaps of cash. Jobbing actors and writers 
I mean, it's like any freelancers, right? Especially in the creative industries, a lot of people really do live paycheck to paycheck. And you might get a big spike of cash if you get a great job. But then in between, you're out of work. And that insecurity, coupled with pay that just doesn't rise with inflation is really a problem for the creative industries. And actually thinking about what I just said about Rahim Moore and the interview we do about barriers to people entering the very important artistic industries, that is one of them. If you're not independently wealthy, how can you afford to, I don't know, be a podcaster? Hello. I mean, I have to do so much other work on the side. Fine. But that in itself is a privilege. So I think it's about that. But the other thing is... And this is the reason that they're talking about this as a, an existential crisis for the entertainment industry or a sort of crunch point is they're also striking because of generative AI. In the future, if the studios can just use avatars, they're not going to pay them, right? They're not going to pay anyone. And the big question is, who do the machines learn from? And how are they being compensated? It's similar to questions in fashion and in the visual arts. If the AIs are scraping the internet for inspiration, it's got to come in the first place from human artists. This is super interesting. I think we should make a show about it. Anyway, the strike's been going on for so long now, since July the 14th, that those who can least afford not to work are seriously struggling. So we should really feel for them. And I kind of feel guilty as I say this too, but as a journalist, there's a bright side. The strike has opened up rare space for other conversations. Over years of doing celebrity interviews for magazines, I've done all that boring stuff where you, you're not allowed to ask any questions that aren't about the movie or the record. And it, it got worse in later years, like PRs have really tightly controlled these interviews. So you can't have a proper conversation. It's all like, how did you enjoy the role? Tell me the plot of the movie. Just stuff you can get off the internet. So what's the point in talking? It's no good for a podcaster, let me tell you. But lucky me, because because of this weird window of opportunity, I got to talk with Taylor about everything other than movies. <laughs> and it was fab. Because he is a, a well-rounded human. He's got lots of different interests. In particular... And that's why he's here on the show, around sustainability and fashion supply chains. It all started when he had a chance meeting with a jewellery designer while he was waiting for a plane. And they ended up going to, later, going to Botswana to visit an ethical diamond mine. When I met Taylor, he was in Australia with Woolmuck on a recce to check out how the farms work, to look into regenerative agriculture. If he's going to work with a brand, he wants to know what goes on behind the scenes. He's taken to sharing this stuff on his social media. And in our interview, we talk about the risks and rewards of doing that, of going outside your lane when you're known for one thing and decide to talk to your followers or community about something else. And I think we can all relate to that, albeit on a smaller scale though, right? <laughs> At the time of our interview, Taylor had 3.7 million Instagram followers. As I record this, a few weeks later, it is 4.7 million. Imagine gaining a million followers in just a few weeks. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're a fashion fan who's seen Taylor at Fashion Week um, emerging shirtless from his car outside the Prada menswear show, for example, that went viral. Or maybe you're about to meet him for the very first time. Either way, I guarantee you're going to love him. He's just a good human and he's determined to use this platform for more than self-promotion. I asked him why, and he talked about wanting to learn new stuff. He said, when you stop being curious, you stop being alive. 
I love it. Okay. Come hang out with Taylor Zakar Perez. We're rolling. Do we say rolling? That's a very cinematic introduction. Action. (laughs) Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Taylor Zakar Perez. We are going to have a conversation about the power of influence. I really want to talk about how we can, if we have platforms, use them for good. Yes. As an actor, as a social media influencer, if you like that phrase or not, doesn't matter. That phrase. Do you? <laughs> Someone <laughs> yeah. with media reach. I like that. Yeah. Do Do you think much about this as um, a responsibility? Yeah, totally. I think the farther I get into it, uh, career wise, the more responsibility comes with it. Mm, with great power comes great responsibility. hundred percent. Yes. Oh my God! Stop it. All right. Start with where we are. Where we are, we are in Sydney, Australia, at the Walmart headquarters in the CBD. Well done. What have you been doing this morning? You've been surfing. (laughs) Yeah, went for a surf this morning, went to Sean's for lunch, went to Icebergs. That was my first time. People told me all the time, like, when you go to Australia, you have to go into the freshwater pool. It's like, it's incredible. I've also heard that sometimes during storms, uh, sharks or like octopus or, you know, just different marine life wind up in the pool. Okay, I feel like this is one of those Australian fantasy stories no, that I get told no. to people who visit here to put them off. Like, like the drop bear. Yes, like the drop bear. <laughs> All right, we are also doing this thanks to Woolmark. Yes. And she's over there. Thanks to Harriet Vocking. Yes. Harriet is the CEO of EcoAge. And EcoAge puts on the green carpet yes. awards, which I've been to in Milan, but this year, for the first time? Yeah. They were in LA. Yes. The official line is that it celebrates positive forces in fashion and entertainment and their collective ability to move culture forwards. You were there? Yes. I am co-presented with Livia, Livia Firth and Vanessa Nakata. She's a Ugandan environmental activist. She is. She's amazing. She's the real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She just like walks the walk, talks the talk and is so humble, uh, but such a powerhouse. She said at the beginning, the fashion and entertainment industries are contributing to the climate crisis, but together we've got the power to turn it around. I love that. But then she said, it's not fashionable if it creates exclusion, poverty, exploitative labor, displacement pollution, or it increases carbon emissions. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I feel like companies, if you lay that out for them, it overwhelms them and then they just don't change, don't want to change. It's too much. You also said, though, that everybody, you said every one of us can play a role. Yeah. Yeah, every one of us can play a role. How are you figuring that out for you then? What what do you care about and why? I guess what motivates me the most is seeing how much people consume on a daily basis and how fast our fashion trends change. Really? And, you know, I mean, we have we have fashion weeks, right? And then two weeks later, the fast fashion companies have already copied them and they're on the uh, on the racks, um, which I think completely is horrifying to these designers that have spent you know the last six months ideating on these new products. But then it's even more terrible that the fibers that they use are probably synthetic. They're probably going to be thrown away and they're going to be on this earth forever because I, I don't think that there's a solution yet to recycle most blended synthetics. I don't know. That could... I don't know if that's true, but I haven't, I haven't seen it in the news yet. Um, and I guess what motivates me is if I can change one person's perception of the world or about consumption or to think again before you buy or do I need this? I think that's, that's exciting. Taylor, it's not very common to hear that is a response 
And I love that that was your response. But if you asked most non-fashion people, let's talk about people who aren't professionals in the industry, they'd say something more like global warming or modern slavery or injustice or, I don't know, racism. Why why clothes? Why fashion? Why do you even think about it? I think we, we interact with textiles every day, all day. The chair that you're sitting on, the jumper that you put on, the car seat that you're sitting in. Like, I mean all day, every day. And for me, I think global warming is such a blanket statement and I think it overwhelms people. But if we can break it down, and for me, I try to do that, you know, like with my supply chain trips, is like making it digestible, making it fun, and just helping people to understand what goes into the products that we produce and where they come from. Mm. I was watching The True Cost, which made me realize all these things about the fashion industry that I never knew. I guess I didn't really understand how massive a polluter it is and all the issues that it has with the supply chains. And I think like back to your question on the, in the beginning of like with great power comes great responsibility, right? Like we joked at it, but it's true because I mean, you can choose one of many paths and you can work with companies that are operating in a less ethical way, you know, creating fast fashion, or you can work with brands that want to make the world better. I'm interested to talk about that, though, because you, in your role as an actor, don't have to step forwards and make a fuss about brands or even choose any brands to work with. You could just get on with being an actor. You could get on with surfing. Why would you choose to engage in this at all? Well, I I have the the great privilege now to work with high-end luxury brands and, you know, be on red carpets and go to fashion shows. But we really don't know where all that stuff comes from. Okay, let's come back to the green carpet. So this year's chairs included Kate Blanchett, Quanna, Chasing Horse, Viola Davis, and Tom Ford. I saw you as Tom Ford. Yeah, I was with Tom Ford. <laughs> You're getting very fashion. I saw you outside <laughs> the Paris fashion shows. You were at Givenchy. There's a very fun picture of you taking a selfie with just hordes of fans behind you. Yeah, yeah Are they your fans cool. or were they Givenchy fans? I mean, I don't know. They brought, they brought a book for me to sign. So I'm assuming that they might've known I was going there. I'm not sure. The fans are crafty. Uh, <laughs> usually I try to post a little bit later so that they don't know where I'm going to go. <laughs> All right. So on the green carpet, you re-wore Armani. Yes. I feel like, I mean, Kate, I like to call her Kate the Great because I'm Australian. Kate the Great has done so much to talk about um, rewear from a women's perspective on the red carpet. And we do hear a lot more publicity around that. I rarely hear it with men. Do you? Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? Do your peers think about it? Do you um, discuss it? I think it's hard to rewear unless it's archival or unless it's a, like a plain navy suit or a black suit because the fashion trends just keep coming and the colors keep changing. And I mean, that's what runs our machine, right? And uh, my friend Barry, who's at Armani, has been like Mr. Armani's like, right hand in Los Angeles for a long time. He's like, you don't need that many tuxedos. He goes, why do you need? It's a classic. You only need one. (laughs) Why do you need five tuxedos? You know, different styles. He's like, you have one tuxedo and you can wear it for the rest of your life. Or maybe, you know, as your body changes, you can, you can change the suit or you get a new one because you just can't fit anymore. But he is all about having your classic cuts, your classic fits and having them forever. And you know, I, I'm not sure how old Barry is, but he just, he's just wise, you know, he's just wise. And he just has seen actors consume and consume and consume because they can. And it was Because nice. so much stuff is offered to you. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. I mean, for years, you know, like you want that designer item and now they just send it to you. <laughs> and you're like, it must be quite full on. Yeah. When yeah. you get to the level where pe- brands are courting you. Yeah, totally. It must actually take quite a lot of willpower to say, I don't want it all. Yeah. I usually say no thank you to a lot of stuff. Just, just because it's like, what, like how much stuff can I have? I wanted to talk with you about the power of influence and what that influence might look like from a Hollywood perspective. Just tell us a bit about that. Presumably, like you're struggling as an actor and you're trying to make your name and it's always yeah. hard and you never know if you're going to get cast. Then at a certain point, you reach a status where people do know what your work. You are in demand. Maybe you get to say no. Mm-hmm. What happens with gifting and such beyond award ceremonies? Are you just bombarded with people trying to give you free stuff? Does it make you think about consumerism? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, my publicists always reach out to me first and ask if I want it or don't want it or go, hey, Taylor, we got this um, email. They'd like to send you something. Do you want it? And like 80% of the time, I just say, no, thank you. Have you ever said, um, no, thank you, because, and I'm prompting you because I wondered about, um, I used to work in magazines and we used to get loads and loads of free beauty products all the Mm -hmm. time and less clothes, but you know, you get a lot of stuff. And then when I moved into sustainability, it was similar, but with sustainable stuff, but I don't want it because dot, Uh, dot, right? I think they know my because now, you know, like my, uh, my branding agent is very mindful of sending me stuff. He'd be like, hey, so-and-so reached out. I told them that you're not accepting anything right now. And yeah, just try to, I think they know my, like the ethos that I operate under, you know, and, and they kind of just say no on my behalf. All right. I read an interview that you did with Glamour magazine back in 2020, just after your role in a rom-com had been <laughs> announced. I'm being careful with my words there. We're not going to talk about specific projects because of the strike that's going on right now. Before it came out, this is when this ran, and the interviewer said, well, she asked you, how did you feel to see a spike on your Instagram of 30,000 followers? And you told her it was surreal. And you said, I've always been very private. So I don't know if I'm looking forward to the attention, but I'm definitely looking forward to using my platform for good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember saying that, but I'm glad that I did say that because I do still feel the same way. I think you can choose so many different ways to go when you become a person of influence. And I think a lot of people bend to how they want others to perceive them because they've been trying for this for so long that they're like, now I need to be movie star. I can only be movie star. Like I can't do anything that's not, you know, GQ or, you know, top notch fashion magazines. Well, the pressure to craft a certain image is obviously present and you don't mm-hmm. get to add, to say, I don't care actually, because that's part of what your role as an actor encompasses. Actually, it's not necessarily true. I'm saying that and I'm thinking of Joaquin Phoenix, people who were like, no, not doing image. I'm only the role and I'm not even going to talk to you apart from the role. (laughs) I don't know anything about certain actors' lives or style or taste. But having said that, for most of them, there is an image that's crafted and you have to be careful of it. Yeah. I mean, I grew up like an athlete and theater kid. So I grew up being kind of like an odd one. And a swimmer, a like swimmer. a really full-on yeah, like competitive swimmer. Right. Nationally ranked swimmer. We were very, very good, very fast. But then what, running off to do theatre in your one weekend off? No, I would, I would swim from 5.30 in the morning till 7, go to school. Then I would swim again from 3 to 5.30. And then I would go to theatre practice in the, the city over uh, from like 
7 to 11 at night. And really? then I would do the same thing over and over Were again. Were you in Chicago? Yeah. yeah. Were, you, were any of your friends? Nobody from my school was in theater. Did you do it in secret? No, not in secret. I just, I couldn't do it concurrently with swimming. It was like you either chose swimming or you chose theater in school. And I was like, my dad and I chatted for a long time. He's like, you're very good at this. You can get a scholarship. And I was offered- The sport, yeah. yeah. And I was offered places to swim. And, and so I'm, I'm glad I did both. You were telling me though about how aware or not you were of creating an image. Yeah, I think I always choose to kind of subvert my image or what people think of me because I think they see me as just like leading man guy. And so therefore you should just be face of fragrance and, you know, saving damsels in distress and stuff like that. And I'm like, why can't we, like, yes, I'm, you know, I play a leading man, but why can't I go do educational trips? Like, I find that exciting. Like, I, I think about when I was a kid, like, if I had people of influence or people that I watched on TV that were having, um, you know, supply chain trips, I think it would make me think again. And now at 31, to be somebody that can, you know, kind of educate younger kids on what they're consuming, what they're wearing, just to think, honestly, I'm just having people think again and just maybe be curious about it. All right, I want to come back to that, but just sticking on the 30,000 Instagram oh, spike. Yeah. <laughs> it is quite funny because now you have got... Like 3.6 million. I wrote it down. It's 3.7 million Instagram followers. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put this in perspective. At the time of recording, which is July 2023, let's talk about some of the biggest followings. Kim Kardashian has, guess how many followers? 240 million. It's 362 million. Whoa. It's actually ridiculous. I just find this interesting because it's like, who are we giving our attention to and why? No shade on Kim, but this is interesting. She's got a huge phenomenal reach. All right, Beyonce, who I would say deserves more. 200? 314, still not too shabby. And Taylor Swift has 268 million. Wow. But in contrast... Greenpeace has 4 million, which is nice, healthy. But once you get down to grassroots organizations in the environmental space, particularly local ones, of course, it gets much smaller. Mm -hmm. The Malibu Foundation, which is the charity that runs the replant days in Santa Monica's mountains oh, yeah. to replace the trees after wildfire loss. I did that. I know. They got <laughs> 13,000 followers on Instagram. So the reason I'm sharing all these numbers is you can use your power of influence and follow account to mm -hmm. shift attention towards arguably those who deserve it more. Totally. But it's making the decision to do it is the toughie. I find that people that want to create their platforms on education or on activism don't get the following because people don't, you know, you get on social media to kind of escape. And I think for me to balance the, the fun projects that I get to do, the trips that I take, and the educational, yeah, the educational journeys that I get to go along on, I think there's a nice balance to it. And people don't feel like I'm pushing anything on them. And yeah. I'm not. Like, yeah. Really, I'm not. I don't put anything on my page that I don't think is interesting. It is risky though, isn't it? Because if people come to your page for a certain reason, e.g. escapism or something behind the scenes from a show, and then you hit them with, 
messaging around the climate crisis yeah. or that very clunky, unsexy word phrase, supply chain. Yeah. Maybe they go unfollow. 100%. Oh, I've lost like a million followers since I did no, not a million. A hundred percent. No, oh, 1.3 million. Do you reckon? Yeah, hundred percent. I've lost 1.3 million. If I share a picture with my of my cat, which is my passion, <laughs> I will lose uh, some of my 40,000 Instagram really? followers. Yes. And then it's like, no, I need them to get people to listen to the podcast. But they're yeah. not here for my cat. They don't care. They're here for the climate crisis. Yeah. So you have got to be, so you've really, you have run the risk. hundred percent. You don't care. But I think I'm confident, I'm confident enough in my skills as an artist and my long-term career mm. that it doesn't phase me mm. you know if it if i can get three percent of my following to learn something new and spread that message it's worth it you spent earth day planting trees yeah tell us about that well half of my house burned down in the fire the woolsey fire Oh, wow. So I, of course, I jumped on it when uh, the Malibu Foundation. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something I really talk about. Because right. it's... Oh, well, it's personal, though. Yeah, it's As personal. in caring is personal. And so many people... You've seen it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, my God, when the fire... When the fire jumped the freeway um, the morning before and, you know, like, packed up animals and hard drives and just was, like, or helping families out and get off the get off the properties it was really scary and what i lost does not compare to what other people lost you know animals full homes um some people haven't even been able to rebuild their homes so i don't talk about it that much but i try to be you know like a steward for the um for the forests and try to replant the uh, the, the mountains when we think about the climate crisis as an abstract it's really hard to find a way in. And often the default is just to go, I'm going to go and play a video game or I'm going to go and watch a film. I'm not going to think about this. Yeah. But when you share a personal story of it impacting you in whatever way, people start to realise it's closer to home or it's relatable. I, I'm thinking about Australia when we had absolutely catastrophic fires, which we often have, but yeah. the worst ones, which is 2019 to 2020 over the Christmas period, they were frightening. And now watching what's happening in Europe with wildfires in Greece, I feel like this sort of, because I remember what it felt like here. Let's talk about where you've been this week. So the reason we're doing this podcast is that we went out for lunch yesterday. I was lucky enough to be invited and we were talking about what you've been doing here. I was there with Harriet. You've been on a farm in rural New South Wales yes. to meet farmers with Woolmark and to figure out what goes on behind the scenes in the wool supply chain. Is that right? That is correct. I learned a lot. What did you learn? <laughs> Who did, well, tell us where you went. Who did you meet? What did you do? Um, we went to Cabin Station. It's about three hours outside of Sydney. And we stayed in this place called Yas, which is like 15 minutes. Yas! Yas, yes. Like, <laughs> Sorry. I know, you can't not say it. Totally. It's impossible. It's like 15 minutes outside of the farming area. And when we got there... Did you stay in a country pub? Is there any hotels there? No, we're, we stayed in, a, in a, like a pretty nice little hotel and then went to a pub the night before. It's good to stay in a country pub, don't get me wrong. What's That's a, a good thing. Pub? A country pub, oh, like a, um, if you go out to rural towns in Australia, often the best place to stay is the local pub that's been there for 150 years and it's rudimentary, shall we say. Gotcha. Le less Soho House, more 
The way, you, <laughs> the way you say it makes me feel like an old Western town. Yeah, a bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You went. Tell us what you discovered. Oh, uh, what did I discover? Um, well, not too much in the in Yas. Like we were just there for the evening and early morning. And then when we got to the farm, I mean, you know, like they had 25,000 sheep there and hundreds of paddocks. And as soon as we got there, we met Matt and he was just like an open book. You know, we started, um, went to go meet his, one of his ranch hands, Ricky, and he took us into the paddock. And I guess the sheep had only been there for about 24 hours. And so they do this because they want the sheep to fertilize the grass or the ground. And it gets the sheep to eat everything as fast as possible so they're not picky, that, so that the ground can just keep turning over and they put them into the next paddock. And just the amount of care and, and love they have for these animals What did you learn about carbon sequestration when it comes to regenerative agriculture? He told me that they're actually carbon positive on the farm. And he said that there's three main jobs of a farmer. One is um, to create ground covering, to grow plants that sequester carbon. And the third one was, oh, biodiversity. And I said, okay, well, how, how do you sequester carbon? And he said, we just can't have bare ground. He goes, because naked soil is bad soil. And I said, the only um, time being naked is bad is when you're soil. He laughed. Did you put that on Instagram? I did, I did, I did. (laughs) All right, I want to come back to how you talk about this stuff with your audience. So yesterday at lunch, I got to say, you weren't mobbed by people who were like, oh my God, it's Taylor. No, no, it wasn't. (laughs) And I say that not to have a dig at you, but to, to talk about how audiences are different. You can have a massive audience, but then also some people have no idea who you are. Yeah. If you're an old person, you can, like me, watch the Met Gala red carpet and be like, no, no idea. I've just lost touch with who these people are. Or you can be talking to an extremely engaged audience who loves your work, who follows you, who's really engaged and excited. So partly it's generational, I think. Yeah. But it's also about figuring out who you're speaking to and how you best reach them, right? Yeah. Who do you think your audience is and how do you navigate talking to them about the stuff you're learning? And I like yeah. how you do it without, like with, um, I want to say humbleness, but that's not a real word, is it? What's the word? Humility. That's the one, I love that. <laughs> but you're not afraid to joke or not know or, I don't know, ask questions. Yeah, I always find when I feel like I can relate to the person that I'm learning from uh, in like a goofy, fun way, I retain it way faster. Yeah, because now forever I'll be like, the only time it's bad to be naked is if you soil. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I find, I find that, I mean, university professors, my, oh my God, I had the best professor. You studied biology, right? I went into UCLA studying biology and I left studying Spanish and history. And one of my professors, I'm not sure where he was from, but he was hilarious. And he was my professor on Iberian Peninsula history. I remember everything, every stat, every random fact, because he made it fun. And so when I, I personally, I don't really have a role model when it comes to environmental issues. Uh, I don't like follow anybody online that I'm like, oh, wow, like they're really, they make me want to be a better person. What? Have you never come across Jane Goodall? Yeah, I mean, that's different. That's different. Like she's the GOAT. Like she is the GOAT. I just started watching her documentary on the plane and she's inspiring. I mean, what, 26 or 27 years old sent to go live with primates. 
Amazing. She's amazing. She's anyway, amazing. Go anyway back, back to me. Back to me. <laughs> but I find that, yeah, if I can laugh and joke and with somebody while I'm learning, the better. Like um, I was just in Tel Aviv and had the most amazing tour guide on the, the Western Wall tour. And I came back just like thrilled to share all this information with people about it. And so like, that's kind of how I go about my informative videos, because I don't want to be too serious. I want people to, to laugh and joke. I mean, send it on whatever. Um, but I really don't have any, any goal when I share it outside of maybe 2% of people going, Oh, that's interesting. And t- for me, like that's a win, you know, I share things like, you know, we share memes, we share videos all day, but I mean, I find that what I share the most sometimes is the, the informative video that makes me laugh or makes me cringe or, you know, just, I just, uh, light. Yeah. I just have light. I think we were talking about this yesterday, Taylor, when we were saying that when you're trying to change difficult, huge environmental or social issues, if you rant at people, you just lose so many of them. You do. Yeah. You do. I mean, I'll be sitting at the airport and people come up to me and like, say with a book from a project that I was in, they asked me to sign it. Um, or a flight attendant like will ask me to sign. Does that I mean, oh my gosh, it's been happening like all the time. And I love that human connection because they're going to remember that, you know, like if I'm a 12 year old kid meeting somebody that I watch on TV, um, and I've watched the movie, you know, 20 times and they're not like a kind person. Oh, it's a huge responsibility. Yes. It's huge. And you can crush, yeah, you can crush people, can't yeah. you? So disappointing when you love someone from afar yes. and then they're mean or they're dismissive or they just turn out to be different to how you expected in a bad way. Yes. It's very bad. But what, <laughs> it's very bad. And But I that's mean, a responsibility. I like that you note it. It is. It is because, I mean, my, uh, my friend, Joey King, she kind of just, walks that walk. And she taught me that, um, while we were working together, she just lovely to everybody and just spreads kindness. And that's how I was raised anyway. Do you know what as well? It's a warning listeners, in case you're planning on being famous. You also remember when you weren't the one being in- interacted with. I was once on a plane with Matthew McConaughey and I've never seen anyone so charming and nice to all the people around him. And I'm now a massive fan <laughs> because yes. he was so delightfully kind to yeah. everyone and it wasn't fake. He could, he just did it the whole time. Yeah, but like, why not? So coming back to that thing about how we then can use that, I'm not talking about cynicism here, but just how we can employ it if we can tap into it to get people to move along with us on this stuff. Yeah, it's like uh, there's a saying, uh, the, the moment you stop being grateful is the moment you start getting hateful. And I love when people come up to me and, you know, the first thing they say is, oh my gosh, I liked you in you know, this project or that project. Um, and then the, the follow-up question is, I saw you go to a diamond mine. I saw you go to a sheep farm. I saw you go to that cotton regen farm, you know, like, and I never thought that people come up to me and be interested in it. You know, it's just something that I find interesting. Mm. And I mean, I have a great time doing it too. Ah, I know that you went to visit this mine in Botswana, which is a diamond mine that I believe you found out about through your friend Shilpa, who's got this jewelry brand, Chiffon Co. Is that right? Yes. I met Shilpa in New York and I had no idea what she did. She had no idea what I did. And we just, I actually missed my plane because we just got on talking for like three hours. And then she introduced me to Harriet over at, at EcoAge. And Harriet and I have just been kind of taking trips ever since. I do find that I'm swayed a bit more when I'm educated by a real-time experience. And so I think for me, like I went to Botswana 
and we went to a sustainable mine. And you're like, what's a sustainable mine? Everybody thinks that diamonds are blood diamonds. They do have a reputation though, don't they, of potentially having modern slavery in the supply chains. Yes. And I think that was definitely a misconception, or I should say preconceived notion that I had going into it. Growing up watching Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio and then going to visit this mine and learning that this mine only has like 25 more years of life left, that they're investing into the future of their community. They're not just gonna leave it high and dry. All the kids get free educations, you know, and like being there and witnessing that, Nassim runs a tight ship and she's crazy smart. And who are we to come in and tell her how to run her mine when it is, it is boosting the country's GDP, putting kids through universities, um, building sports arenas. Why did you want to work with Walmart? Well, going back to Botswana, Harriet and I, I think we're getting on a little prop plane and I pulled out my jacket and I think it was probably like a polyester um, synthetic jacket. And she goes, you know, you can make that out of, out of wool, right? And I was like, BS, no, you can't. She's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Walmart has this jacket. It's called the, the Optum jacket. And, and I just didn't believe it. And so that really kind of sparked my interest in what wool can do. Had you ever thought about what's in your clothes before? When I shrink them, when, my, <laughs> when I put my wool jumper in the, the dryer. Taylor, and... do you do your own washing? <laughs> yes, of Good. course I do my own washing. No, but it's a serious question. Did you ever think much about fashion supply chains or what's in your clothes? That's like a fashion revolution hashtag, what's in my clothes? Yeah, I think the other day we were talking about different types of fibers that go into our clothing and then you put them in the washing machine and then they're drained into the waterways, right? Oh, and microplastic pollution, yeah. Microplastic pollution. And then they go, okay, we're gonna create filters so that doesn't go into the, into the water streams. And you're like, that's how we fix the problem. You know, like we're going to create a solution so it doesn't go back into our drinking water and we can't get it out. We're not going to fix it at the fountainhead. I feel like that, that's, that's what we do. Yeah, I saw this great graph the other day and it just shows the, the growth in synthetic fibers. I think all fibers, it's interesting that people have no clue what they are. Yeah, like, totally. Unless you're speaking to a designer or someone who works in sustainability or textiles, most people couldn't identify fibers by looking at them. I grew up with, you know, a mom who, we had horses. And, you know, there were, there were cows across the street and there's a cornfields. And there were you were, quite rural? I thought you were in the city. Both. I had this, like, I had a double life. <laughs> um, so we had, um, we had auto body shops throughout Chicago. Cars. Cars. And then my family moved us into the country. And so weekends, I go work at the body shop. Weekdays, we'd be in Indiana, you know, going to school and stuff. And we had horses. And wow. yeah, just my mom didn't like waste would never give us like plastic bags, would never give us plastic anything. Like everything just had to be reusable. And so even like her her sweatshirts and her, her jackets, like everything was was wool. But it was interesting because I grew up thinking like wool is so itchy. Like I don't want to wear wool. It's itchy, 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 itchy. And the more I got into it, I was like, wow, there I just wasn't buying the right wool products because I have so many wool pieces now that are soft on my skin. It's almost like a second skin. Okay, we're running out of time, but I'd like to end on <laughs> advice. Sorry. I could just keep talking. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 
Time is money. Time is money and the money is mine. All right, what's your advice? If you're listening to this and you feel that you have influence, and also I want to make everyone realize they have influence because I realized when I just said that, most people feel they have no influence. Most people will go, well, I don't feel like that. I feel like I'm ignored and no one cares what I think. I have no power. That isn't actually true. Everyone's got a sphere of influence that they can use to affect the people around them. So if if we could encourage people to think that they all have some kind of influence that they could use, what would be your advice on how to do that? Hmm. I think my biggest piece of advice would to be ask questions and think again. Uh, there's this incredible occupational psychologist. His name's Adam Grant, and he has a book called Think Again. And it just totally rocked my world because, you know, we're raised with all of these lessons. And we should just now 10, 20, 30 years later, why are we thinking the same things we thought when we were 15. All the assumptions were given and we don't question. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm always just thinking again. Honestly, my mom instilled in me, uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. Focus, have fun, and and um, just lead with kindness. That's beautiful. I'll take that. <laughs> Taylor, this has been very kind of you to make space on your visit to talk to us. It's very kind of you to have me. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you, because I love you.